Father, you are amazing. You're great. Perfect. Uh, when we do come into your presence, sometimes we do have just this sense of awe that we don't deserve to come into your presence, but by your grace, we can experience your love, and we are forever grateful. We want to learn about your ways and your plan, and this morning as, as we've been going through this book in Hebrews, we ask that you would teach us this last part, even though this is a, a difficult subject, help us uh, to gain your heart in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3, page 653 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand, someone will bring you one, it's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. But we have been kind of camped out on these three verses for this is the seventh week. So this is the last week on these, and then we're going to move on. But because it lists six fundamentals of the gospel itself, and so absolutely critical, we want to make sure we understand these things. And so we're at this point here in Hebrews 6, 1 through 3, and looking at eternal judgment. I uh, I had an illustration, and I went to go find my marbles, and I and I lost them. Okay, I literally I could not find them anywhere. I had to go buy new marbles. Okay, at Walmart last night. So I, you know, I got these got these marbles. I have to be careful with this because um, first service I almost choked. Okay, so so we gotta gotta see if we can do this right here. So, mm-hmm. Did you understand me? Nobody? Anybody? Nobody? Nobody? I said, what if God was vague? What if he mumbled? What if he talked with marbles in his mouth? None of us could know for sure what is the truth, could we? But God is not vague. He has spoken clearly in his word. And specifically what we see in our passage, he's given us these six, as we've seen throughout the New Testament, the, the explanation of these six foundational truths of the gospel. And so let's look at it, this last truth. Let's look at our passage, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And by the way, I am so grateful that he doesn't have marbles in his mouth, that he has spoken clearly. Look what he says. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. Now, once again, the, uh, the background of this passage 
the author of Hebrews is rebuking this church. As we saw in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, he spoke to them how they were too lazy, that they by this time should have moved on to solid food, but were still needing milk, still focusing on just the basic principles of God's revelation. That's uh, chapter 5, verse 12. And then in our passage here, he then says, so let's leave the elementary teachings about Christ. Now, he's not saying let's leave by forsaking or forgetting. He means let's go beyond. We these are, he calls them foundational truths. So these are essential to the very foundation of the gospel, but we want to build on that. So what we've been doing over the last seven weeks is looking at these six foundational truths to make sure we understand them correctly and well, and then we're going to move on next week, okay, into a very easy, simple passage uh, of chapter 6, verse 4. And I'm just kidding. That's probably one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. So next week's going to be another one of those fun weeks, okay? But this week, we're finishing up this, and we're looking at this final basic, this final foundational truth of the gospel that he lists as eternal judgment. A part of Satan's original temptation is to cause doubt on God's judgment. In Genesis 3, 4, Satan said to Eve, you will not surely die. And he lied to her, but causing doubt about God's judgment. Satan sneaks into seminaries and poisons future pastors with the compassionate view that God won't actually judge sin. This lie has seeped into society. Remember uh, two, three years ago, uh, my son Isaac, who's in seminary now down in North Carolina, he's uh, studying to become a pastor, and he was, uh, for the summer, was interning with our church, so he was kind of helping me pastor. It was kind of neat to have my son, you know, helping me pastor. But So we did his first funeral. He had to help out. I led it, but he had to help out in his very first funeral. And boy, did he have to dive into the deep end with this funeral, okay? Because at this funeral, it was, there was this, a guy, I didn't know him, but he had committed suicide. And the, the funeral home asked me if I would do the funeral because the family didn't have any religious background, but they wanted a religious service. So I said, sure, of course, I'll help out and whatever I can. So we met with the family, and we're listening to them, and they're telling us about this guy. And, uh, and, and I asked him, did he have any religious background, anything at all, any Bible passages, anything, songs? And they said, oh, no, he didn't believe in God at all. You know, he didn't have any religious background. We don't either. So why do you want a religious ceremony? But anyway, you know, so, so that's what they were saying. And then I said, well, what was he like? And, and every one of them said he was awful, just a mean person, terrible. His mom is telling me this, okay? He had killed himself in the backyard of his ex-wife just to spite her. Prior to that, he had done a bomb threat in her front porch just to be mean. He went to jail for it for a while, okay? So, so I'm telling them, they're telling me all this stuff, and I'm like, wow, how do you do a funeral for that? And uh, 
So we did, and, you know, I just preached the gospel, which I do that at all funerals. I just preach the gospel, and, and, but what really amazed me, a couple different people came up to me afterwards, and this is what they said. Well, at least he's in a better place. And I'm thinking, everything you just told me, what could possibly cause you to think he's in a better place? And it's because of this lie. This lie has lulled people asleep to their need for salvation. And that is not compassionate. Eternal judgment is certain. So let's find out why this is a foundational truth of Christianity. By walking through Romans 1, 18 through 32. So he lists it here in our passage. So now we're going to look at a more thorough covering of this particular foundational truth in Romans chapter 1. We could spend weeks just on this passage, but we're not going to. Okay, But Romans 1, 18 through 22. It starts out with Romans uh, with verses 18 through 20, where we see that people are without excuse. Look what it says. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. And so we see this concept. I wanted, uh, as I was preparing this, I was reading Samuel Colhoun. He's a Jewish theologian. His book, Essays in Jewish Theology. And I read a chapter, actually it was because of, uh, it was because of Ian. Uh, where's Aaron at? Uh, it was because Ian texted me a question and I, I had to look into it more. So it's great. You know, you know, don't you love it when young people have questions about the Bible? Well, anyway, okay, so I, I read this chapter, and this is his thought, the chapter's on original sin. And what's really fascinating is this guy, he doesn't even believe this, but look at how he starts the chapter. He says, the doctrine of original sin, which in varying forms figures in Jewish as in Christian thought, derives its vitality from the raw facts of life and involves both the nature of man and the justice of God. The Bible exalts man as the child of God, stamped with his image and likeness. He is but a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and with honor. He's capable of deeds of mercy and compassion to the point of complete self-effacement. He often sacrifices himself upon the altar of truth and of goodness. He also shows himself base and cruel, exhibiting traits of savagery that would shame the beasts and sinking to abysmal depths of degradation. His self-centeredness and his antagonism to others blight his own life and fill the world around him with sorrow. He delights in sadistic pleasures and employs his gifts of mind to inventing fiendish instruments for the torture of his fellow men. He aspires after God, and he goes the way of the devil. He strives after freedom of the spirit and seeks to widen the horizon of truth and of justice. He builds centers of light and of healing to redeem the helpless and the forlorn. He also erects prisons for the human intellect and darkens the world with falsehood. 
He constructs torture chambers and horror camps for the extermination of his fellow men. He uses the richest fruits of knowledge for the scientific destruction of the minds and bodies of infants and gray heads. How can we account for the frightful malignity which appears to fester at the core of human nature? How does man come to create yawning pits of hell in the heart of civilized society? And why are his finest intellectual achievements turned into threats to his own existence and his hopes perpetually blasted? It paints a sober picture, doesn't it? A picture of depravity. Some people don't believe in depravity. I was seeing uh, the Babylon Bee, if you've ever read that. I came up with this uh, picture here, which I thought was interesting. All right. Our passage says people are without excuse. It starts out by saying that humans actually suppress the truth. That's how it ends. Verse 18 ends. So... They're suppressing the truth. See, if you, let's say, forget a meeting, you have a meeting you have to go to, you forget about it, and then after the meeting's over, you remember, and you're like, oh, man, you call, you apologize, okay. You're not culpable. You're not evil for forgetting a meeting, right? But if you willfully suppress the time so that you can do something else, you are guilty. And this passage is saying we suppress the truth because of our godlessness and unrighteousness. And our passage says that God has revealed himself to everyone. Now, this is a double-edged sword because it reveals God's kindness, but our guilt. So how has he revealed himself? Our passage speaks of two different ways. First of all, there's an innate knowledge of God that he's placed within every single person. Verse 19, it says, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. That word among them, in the Greek, it's in. He's placed it in them. And every single person, he's placed an innate understanding of God. There are no true atheists. Most atheists have had a bad experience that pushed them away from God. I did a debate, a professional debate in, in uh, Colorado Springs with the, the atheist Dan Barker. He goes all over the world and does these kinds of debates. And what I discovered was that an emotional experience is what led him away from God, not any evidence. This innate understanding of God according to the Bible is there in every single human being. And also, the general revelation can be discovered in creation. He goes on to say, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. So even as creation, when we look at creation, we realize there is a creator Psalm 19 speaks of this. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his name. There's nowhere you can go where that speech is not found. Psalm 19 
speaks of the grandeur of creation and how it has led most of civilization to believe in a supreme being. But sin has corrupted that belief. I think in our modern times, we have this thing called DNA. Have you heard of it? DNA. What does that mean again? D-O-9. That thing, yeah. Okay, that stuff. That's uh, DNA. It's, uh, I was reading in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for the Creator, and uh, he's uh, interviewing Stephen Meyer, a philosopher and scientist, and, and he's, Stephen says, DNA is like a library. The information in this, just this little, what is it? It's not even a cell. It's a small particle of a cell or something, right? Yeah, whatever that is, the D-O-N-U-C-L-E-A-R thing. Okay, but it's like a library. He then goes on to say, he says, I believe the presence of information in the cell, this amount of information, is best explained by the activity of an intelligent agent. Bill Gates said DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than anything we've ever devised. That's highly suggestive because we know that at Microsoft, Gates uses intelligent programmers to produce software. Information theorist Henry Quastler said as far back as the 1960s that the creation of new information is habitually associated with conscious activity. DNA is proof that there is an intelligent designer behind it. We know by looking at creation, we know also because God has placed it in us that he exists and that we are accountable to him. Both Darwin and Dawkins admit the world appears to be designed. Could it be that the universe appears to be designed because it is? That's common sense, by the way. People are without excuse. And then our passage in verses 21 through 31, we see how sin has wrecked this world and will be punished. Before we look into the verses themselves, I want to give you an illustration to help you understand because sometimes people look at the world and they see the mess, they see the devastation, they see the heartache, and they say, there cannot be a good God. There cannot be any God. Everything's so wrecked and so messed up. But perhaps this illustration might help you in that difficulty. Imagine that you have tickets and you are an art enthusiast. And you have tickets to go see Picasso's paintings. And there's a display of his whole blue period. And you get to go see these things. And you just can't wait to get there. But unbeknownst to you, someone the night before sneaks into the art gallery and slashes all the paintings with a knife and then takes a bunch of red paint and throws it all over the paintings. Now, when you get there the next morning, you are not going to say, Ah, that Picasso, he's a lousy artist. Look at these ripped up red painting things. No, you would say, I still see the beauty and the intricacy and the amazing parts of Picasso. And and, and yet I see this horrible devastation. This is tragic. What has happened? Listen, that's exactly how we should see the world. Because when we look at the world, we see the devastation. We see the slashing. We see how it's been ruined. But we also see the glimpses of glory. We see the beauty. We see it in between the lines. 
And we should say, this is a marvelous world, but it's been wrecked. It's been wrecked by sin. Sin is what destroys the world, as we see in Genesis chapter 3. But tragically, sin is a devastating thing. Look at verses 21 and 22. We see that sin actually makes us stupid. He says, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became Instead of seeing the beauty of the world and recognizing, instead of giving God glory and giving him thanks, their thinking became worthless. Senseless hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, became fools. Sin makes us stupid. See the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 19. It's just baffling because what we see in these passages of Scripture, the people who are hurting themselves... And wondering why they're hurting. It's like someone banging their head up against the wall and wondering why they have a headache. Sin is what wrecked this world. Sin is what ruins us and hurts us. But it makes us foolish. And so we don't even see that we're hurting ourselves. The passage goes on. Even worse, 23 through 25, we see that false religion is rebellion. He says, in exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Notice here, so many people think that all the different religions of the world are just people who are blindly seeking after truth, and so that's kind of what they discovered. But the exact opposite is the case. God has revealed himself, but they reject that. They suppress that truth, and so then they create their own religions and their own false gods, gods that they can manipulate, that they can control so that ultimately they can be God, which was the original temptation. You can be like God. False religion is rebellion. And then in verses 26 through 31, we see there is no excuse for sin. He says, for this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. This litany of sin, what we see here, uh, there is no excuse. 
Yeah, I don't know if you noticed, but three times it says God delivered them over. Look what it says. We see the first in verse 24. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. In verse 26, for this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. In verse 28, and because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. We see three times that God delivered them over. Listen, this is the scariest indictment imaginable. Because what God is saying is he's like, fine. Go your own way. He takes his hand off of them. The only possible hope of grace and help, God himself, he says he delivers them over. He lets them go. He says, go down your own path. I won't stop you, but it will destroy you. That is frightening. And then notice, Paul appeals to natural law and the consequences of breaking it. He's not even appealing to Scripture now, though he could have from the Old Testament. He's appealing to natural law, that law that Romans chapter 2 reveals that God has placed within us an understanding of basic right and wrong and that we should know this. We see this specifically uh, in verses 26 and 27 where he says their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. We see this, this Appeal to natural, they should have known this. And if you just think about it, without the emotions, it's not the way we were designed. And it does bring heartache to the world. Now, people don't like to hear this, especially when Christians say it from hatred. We should never be haters. But if you speak the truth from a genuine heart of compassion, some will listen. Just this last week, we had a guy knocking on doors, stumping for a particular political candidate. And we got into a conversation. He was from the uh, Democrat Party. And so we got into this conversation about some issues, and we specifically talked about transgender and homosexuality. And I shared with him, I said, you know, these people, we, are, we have to care for them. We have to love them. We, we don't want them to be hurt. But the worst thing you could do is tell them that it's okay. It's like if somebody's cutting themselves. You don't say, oh, that's the way God made you. It's okay. Out of compassion, you reach out in love, and you share that there's hope, that there can be healing. And, so, and you, you make yourself available. And I think he caught a glimpse of that. It, we had a very cordial conversation. There was no hatred involved at all. By the grace of God, I have been used by God to reach out to four different homosexuals by befriending them, by loving them, by also sharing the truth because I really did care about them. And all four of them placed their faith in Jesus Christ and abandoned the, the way of life that was destroying them. That can be true 
we share the love, the truth of God in love. And I think that's the heart here, but we must never say judgment isn't going to take place. Because as we see our passage in the end, verse 32, we see that God's justice is just and certain. He says, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. No matter what you think, the final court of appeals is God. What he thinks is what matters. And he has spoken clearly what he thinks, not with Marbles in his mouth. And everyone knows this deep down. There are no true atheists, as I said. Let me read from Gregory Kukul's book, The Story of Reality. He says, none of us can long avoid the gnawing sense of guilt we feel for the bad things we have done. This is a good thing, of course, for a couple reasons. For one, the person who never feels bad about doing bad things, an especially unpleasant kind of person known as a sociopath, is not likely to stop himself from doing something dreadful when it suits him. But there is another reason. It is a very small step from feeling guilty to realizing that we feel guilty because we are guilty. And that is precisely what the story tells us. We are broken, true enough, but we're not simply malfunctioning. We're not machines that need to be fixed. We are transgressors who need to be forgiven. We have not merely made mistakes like getting our sums wrong when balancing accounts. We have sinned. And with sin comes guilt, and with guilt comes punishment. The sin must be answered for, must be paid for in some way, atoned for, if you will. So here's our question. Before whom do we stand guilty? To whom are we beholden? From whom do we need forgiveness? And the answer is God. I've heard people use this phrase, guilt-free churches. We are guilty, but God in his grace has provided forgiveness for our sins. That's the good news, that though we are guilty and deserve punishment, We can escape the wrath of God, escape the judgment, the eternal judgment that is certain to come through faith in Christ. But we also need to know that there are no second chances. Our eternal destiny is decided in this life. Apart from repentance, there is no hope. Unless our hearts are softened towards God's conviction, we will run away from God, condone our sin, and encourage others to follow, as we see in this passage. They not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. This is very similar to Isaiah chapter 5, which you turn there. Isaiah 5, a very ominous warning here. Chapter 5, verse 20 and 21 
He says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. The NAV says, who are wise in their own eyes. This is a, an indictment. Woe to those, instead of, we're all broken. We're all sinful. We all have these corrupt natures. And we all, it acts out in different ways. But what he's saying here is, we dare not say it's not wrong. We dare not try to make excuses but say it's good and even encourage others to do it. That's what this passage is saying. Isaiah chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 22, gives this same uh, indictment, but he's saying the day of the Lord is coming. Verse 19, it says people will go into caves in the rocks and holes in the ground away from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor when he rises to terrify the earth. Notice here, it says that they will, they will see that God in his awesomeness is going to bring judgment, but instead of running to him, the fear of the Lord that draws us near, though we are afraid, we see that he's our only hope, and we're in awe of him, so we draw near, and we receive his forgiveness. Instead, they see the, the God as terrifying, and they try to hide from the one you cannot hide from. And the tragedy is, he goes on to say, but judgment is certain to come. So put no more trust in a mere human who has only the breath in his nostrils. What is he really worth? These verses that we won't read this morning, but in Luke 13 and 16 and Hebrews 9 and Matthew, uh, we see here there are no second chances after death. Our eternal destiny is decided in this life. No purgatory, no second chances. So what should be our response as Christians? Our response is to share the gospel in love. Our response is to have the same heart that God has that we see in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You see, people say, well, why doesn't God just wipe out the evil? He is going to do that someday. But it says here that he's waiting because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants to give as many people opportunities to repent as possible. And he does that through us. As we have his heart for the lost and we're willing to step out and have conversations with the person that comes to your door or wherever else. And we talk to them, sharing the truth in love. Love the lost enough to tell them about Jesus. And so we see 
eternal judgment is the sixth and final fundamental of the gospel. What we've seen, first of all, is repentance. That a person must repent of their sins before they can be saved. And repentance is a change of mind and heart about your sin. That you see that it is wrong, that you don't want it in your life anymore, but you can't stop, so you cry out to God to save you from it. Repentance. We saw that faith in Christ is the only thing that saves us. That we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ Jesus. What he did on the cross. We're not saved by our good works. We're not saved by our rituals. We're saved by our faith in Christ. We saw that baptism is the initial outward expression of that faith. And the importance and centrality of baptism all the way through the scriptures. We saw that being filled with the Spirit, that when you receive Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, but we also need to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit who helps us live this life to be able to live it out and be these lights for the world. We saw the death and resurrection of Jesus is what brings about our forgiveness, that Jesus paid the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. And that he rose from the dead three days later, verifying and proving that this is the gospel. And that eternal judgment is certain, but God is waiting. So where are you? Let's pray. Father, when we think of these things, uh, we don't like to think about these things. But yet, it's so clear throughout your word what's coming up. And you are just in what you will do. But you are also loving and have provided a way out, an escape. And you're waiting because you want to give more and more people that opportunity. And I believe a great revival will be at the end of this world where multitudes hear your truth because of people like us willing to step out and share. So we ask that you would help us. Help us to step out of our comfort zone and share the love, but help us to actually love the unlovely like you do. And if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you. Maybe they know about you, but they don't know you personally. I pray you draw them to yourself, though they may tremble because you are an awesome God. They will see your love and how you've provided forgiveness, free grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Worship our God.